another behind the lens and it's hard to believe but it is the last day of july we are half more than halfway through the year now um it's just zipping by and of course we're zipping into one of the best times of the year for film and television emmy awards oscar campaigns are starting uh with films that are being released and i got news for you i've seen some of the ones that are coming up shortly one being american assassin Oh, my God, I'm going to tell you right now. It's not out till September, so we'll be talking about it later. And my exclusive interview with director Michael Cuesta. Uh, but it is killer. I I just have I, – I sung high praises for Hacksaw Ridge last year. I sung high praises for John Wick, Chapter 2 this year. American Assassin is joining in into the, in that trio. Um, so we will talk more about that in September. But I'm thrilled. We have an in-studio guest today. In-studio. Yay! Yay! We have the fabulous Becca on call herself, <laughs> Janice <laughs> Rousey. Rouse. 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 Like house. Like house. Yeah. And this is such a treat to have you here. Well, thank you. Busy, busy lady. You know, Janice was one of those wonderful people that when she saw my name on the credentialed press for Dances with Films, sent me a little email. And I sent her a little email back, said, I would love to see what you have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I fell in love with your TV pilot, Becca on Call. Becca on Call. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Becca on Call is moving through the festival ranks. It is. We're doing pretty well. People are pretty excited about it. What's interesting about Becca on Call is it's kind of got that Pollyanna uh viewpoint of the world it's kind mm-hmm. of an innocent humor but it also relates to adult themes in the sense of going out and trying to make your way in the world trying to make a dream come true mm-hmm. and people really like that they like that innocence of it because it brings out the childlike humor that people mm-hmm. have on the inside i believe everyone has that on the inside <laughs> <laughs> i do and i'm going for it and then of course going after your dream and the disappointments but making light of it mm-hmm. and people really resonate with that kind of concept so well and it's very interesting because complimenting you today as i as you have described yourself the jacqueline of all trades yes Jacqueline. Joining us at 1130 <laughs> on the phone is another uh, and wonderful director. I am so thrilled to know this man. Derek Wayne Johnson is going to be live, joining us live on the phone, talking about his new documentary, John G. Avildsen, the hero. Was it the hero? <laughs> the king of the, the underdogs. The king of the underdogs. <laughs> I'm, we were rushing this morning. Forgive me. Um, and thankfully, Janess was here to, to, add, to help me um, in our rushing uh, to get everything set up. But Derek is very much a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. He's a pro- and on this doc in particular, producer, director, writer, editor. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And do you know that he's got he interviewed did over 40 interviews for that doc? Oh my. Well, I saw several interviews. There were quite a few and he was passionate about the subject. When you're passionate about the subject, you have to go out there and just do it. And you know, and John Avildsen's filmmaking was very, very, very similar. You know, his filmmaking style in the 70s and 80s, I mean, Avildsen is a man behind Rocky, The Karate Kid, For Keeps, uh, The Power of One. Um, lean on me. Lean on me. Storytelling from the heart. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of humor. There's mm-hmm. a lot of heart. And very much, you know, you look at a Rocky Balboa, and there is an, a Pollyanna innocence to him and yeah. his beliefs. Oh, Yeah. So that's why I, I think this is a perfect compliment. You two, you two, and your and your yes. mindsets. Yay, Derek! We go. <laughs> <laughs> so just sit back and enjoy this. But you know, you, Little Miss Jacqueline of all trades. <laughs> I love that. I think that I think that's a fabulous. You, description. you went on my website. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> that's did- in the about section. <laughs> Do you th- do you think I just sh- I just, you know there was some a listener oh a few weeks ago who started a little rant because you know I go through and I research and I you know and I dig sure. before I interview people yeah well you, we need to know who you're interviewing otherwise you have no questions to ask and somebody got very you know was like you stole my interview questions. And it's like, okay, number one, I don't write questions, as you can see. Yeah. I do not write questions. Notes. Notes but are good. it's just, you know, when you want to familiarize yourself with a subject, mm-hmm. you look everywhere. And especially, as I'm sure that you know, as I know Derek knows, when you start doing press interviews, if you're doing roundtables and junkets, you've got five rooms with six people at a table. And you're focusing in on the product, on that film, on that right. show. Right. You know. You need to know what you're talking about. Well, and er, people are going to be asking a lot of the same stuff. Yes. Correct. Because there's only so much you can ask in a general way about. Right. About different subjects. And then the specifics come through the interview process and, and the conversation. That, and pretty much that's just it. Mm-hmm. So you start with the broader aspect and, and you know research that you find mm-hmm. on the subjects mm-hmm. um but so yeah but somebody was like you know well why do you do that you shouldn't a- you shouldn't you shouldn't prepare <laughs> how can you not prepare <laughs> yeah so yeah interesting I-, I found it to be quite striking yeah so you know i was even prepared to talk to you on the red carpet for goodness sake yeah you did a good job well, you, you you actually watched it surprised me i had forgotten that i had sent you the link because that was our world premiere mm-hmm. so when you started asking questions about uh different sections of the pilot i was stunned there was feedback from someone who has seen it who is not associated with the project <laughs> and it's funny i heard a lot of that like adam rip who did the devil's whisper Mm-hmm. which was an amazing yes. film yeah. at, at DWF. Um, and Adam is like, oh, my God, you watched it. You watched it. <laughs> you actually care. <laughs> and I, I, that always, I'm very disappointed. I'm thrilled when I hear it, but I'm also mm-hmm. disappointed that other people, when they're given the, the access, especially with dances with films, right. you had the access right. to screeners before the festival, mm-hmm. and you don't take advantage of it. There's a lot of content out there. One of my friends who's in the industry says it's very congested. The mm-hmm. the industry's very congested. So when people are pounded 
with a bunch of content, they have to sift through it. But when you have an uh, avenue like Dances with Films or these film festivals, that gives you a little bit of focus. Yeah. And it's people forget to switch out of that everything on YouTube, everything on Netflix, too. If I'm going to be doing any kind of uh, reporting, interviewing for this festival, I can focus on these. Yeah. Let's delineate. Let's organize mm-hmm. this. And that that's the uh, method they should go about doing it, but very few people actually yeah. do. So it's, it's an honor for us uh, artists, myself, Adam, Derek, for someone to actually do what you should be doing, <laughs> actually do it, and then... Uh, have good feedback, actual Mm -hmm. educated feedback and questions and critique as well. Because when you're getting started or you're, you're, you're screening a brand new project that no one's really seen, I'm, I'm an unknown, so no one really knows much about me yet. But when you start getting feedback that's not related to the people who are directly connected to you, that's where you really start listening. And Mm -hmm. it means a lot when someone who, the only connection they have to us is the screener, Mm -hmm. is the project that they saw, and the feedback is good. Like, you you were very positive. It was very encouraging (laughs) to me. I was like, oh, I did something right. It's not just, hey, Jeunesse, you're my friend. <laughs> and so, <laughs> now you're my friend. But it it is encouraging for us artists who are going out there, doing what we love to do, and then we're starting to have something to show for it. Mm-hmm. So. so, you know, because you are a quote-unquote unknown, mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you've been around a while. You've done, you've done theater. Yes. You've done some TV. Yeah. Film? Yes, yeah. you've done. I, I was primarily doing a lot of work in New York. Mm-hmm. That's where I was building kind of a, a name for myself. Then I came out to L.A., and I primarily was behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And just because L.A. is a different animal yeah. than New York. And so I wanted to kind of get a feel for what L.A. was, and, and there was a consistent theme of hurry up and wait. <laughs> And, or, you know, do workshops, go to acting studios and wait. And (laughs) then you wait for the workshop where the agents and managers are there. And then you do a scene for them, but you don't really speak to them. And then you wait. And it just, you know, I I wanted to honor the system because I was brand new to LA. So you you follow (laughs) protocol. You follow what people have done before because generally they know more than you do when you're brand new. But then it finally came to that point of, I need to do something. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm an artist. This is what I do. I like the craft. That's why I went to New York. I didn't go to New York to make a lot of money. I went because I love the craft. <laughs> so when I came out here and I, I was working, I was working at Speed Reels, which is a production company. And I was doing some things, doing some scenes, writing and things things like that, editing. And it finally got to the point where I wanted to just create something. Let's Mm -hmm. just, let's just, I have this scene, so I need to shoot a scene. So I shot that scene, that scene, uh, generated a little bit of interest. You've got a writing gift. I do. Oh, (laughs) how much would it take to make this into a web series? And I started looking at, I started looking at web series. I started asking some people that I had met along the way, 
web series and they said, no, 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 you don't want to do a web series. There's too much of that out there because you're just going to be going up against people jumping on a trampoline in their underwear. So what you want to do is try to make a pilot, make a, Mm -hmm. what he said was a smoking hot pilot. So I started writing an episode and I knew that the original script was not going to be what we put on camera, but I was getting the, the idea, Mm -hmm. the essence of it, the essence of it on paper and then I created a two minute trailer or a pitch Mm -hmm. if you will that started opening up a lot of doors Mm -hmm. then I waited a long time and the doors that opened stayed open but they were just sitting and I'm from Texas and when you Uh. say you're gonna do something you just go ahead and do it (laughs) so when this just kind of waited a long time (laughs) I said, I need to do something about this. So I went home and established Rising Monarch Productions. Mm -hmm. And I made the pilot. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I am learning throughout this process is when you just go out and do it and create, do what you got into the industry to do, Mm -hmm. which was to create entertainment. When you go out and start creating it, doors start to open and they continue to open and the momentum continues. Mm -hmm. So that's what, with especially with Beck on Call, I finished it, uh, finished the post-production of it back in December. Then I started throwing it out to festivals just to see. And then I started creating a live show, which we're not supposed to talk about in this, this show. We're supposed to talk about later. But I started a live show. And while I was waiting on Back on Call, and then suddenly Back on Call starts to win these awards. And I went, oh, I did pretty good. You, you, had, your, you had your Sally Field moment. <laughs> I had my you like me. You really, really like, like me. me. <laughs> Which is what I said. And um, <laughs> that started generating awards. Then you start building a little confidence. Like, I really do know what I'm doing. And then the um, the live show started to pick up steam and more instrumentalists wanted to get involved and then I actually got a live screening a world premiere at the Chinese theaters that's pretty good for a first timer in LA yeah (laughs) and that's just that's what you have to do when you get into this industry anymore I mean and if you look at it that's kind of what uh, Sylvester Stallone and some of these other when they were new and they were green they went out and just did these these passion projects yes. and just went out and created their own work and that's what opened the doors not the hurry up and wait that's protocol mm-hmm. and you do have to give the system a chance because sometimes it does work you, mm-hmm. you do the the studio and then you get the agent and then you get the co-star role and then that'll move you up you build relationships with the cast directors that does work but then for some of us that doesn't get you very far Right. And you have to do something else or at least do something to bide your time because I was getting bored. <laughs> <laughs> you also need to pay the rent. Yeah, you do have to pay the rent. So you it. But what better way to bide your time than to do things that you actually love doing? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the the path that I'm creating for myself is I'm doing the things that I love to do and creating and everything a part of the creative communication. You know, when I say jack of all trades, I don't just do acting. No, you're a classically trained <laughs> singer. Yeah. Opera was my background. And um but not only that, it's I love everything about the communication process. Mm. It's dancing. I've done flamenco. I was getting pretty good at it and I 
haven't done it since I left New York, but um, there's also speaking and writing and then drawing. I do some design work. I'm not amazing at it, but I like doing it because it's fun and it's communication (laughs) and it's colorful and then it's happy and then you post those pictures that you made, design work. And you you just continue to create and do things that you were made to do. And we artists in the media and entertainment world, we were made to do this. Mm-hmm. This is what we do, so do it. Don't just sit mm-hmm. there. Do something. Even if you're you're going and and doing your your waiting job, do something on the side. When you go home, keep that creativity alive. Keep mm-hmm. doing it. Well, and that's so. that's very much the character of Becca. Yes. In Becca on call. Yes. That is exactly what Becca does. So why don't you yeah. tell the listeners about Becca on Call? Becca on Call. I love call. this pilot. I want to see somebody pick it up and turn it into a show so desperately because these characters that you've mm-hmm. created are so real, are so great, but everybody's waiting for, biding their time, waiting for something. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, but Becca on Call, the premise of it is uh, dream jobs. And everybody has a dream job, but you have to make ends meet. And Becca is wants to be an author. She wants to be the next Jane Austen. And she's got this amazing romantic comedy that's just waiting for the right publisher to pick up. And the publisher never does. So she runs out of money. <laughs> and she goes to dear old dad, who is a very uh, successful cardiologist. And she asks dad for an allowance. So she can continue writing. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll give you an allowance. Come work for me. Allowance. <laughs> so she ends up working for him at his passion project, which is a medical clinic. And that's in we will find out more and more about what that medical clinic is. But all the people in that medical clinic, the nurses, the LPNs, RNs, she's the NA, the nurse assistant, and she's earning her certification because she's unskilled. So she finds out <laughs> that she has to be certified and she has to learn skills. And she's like, no, 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 I'm just here to, to get an allowance. <laughs> <laughs> and she runs into all these different nurses who have their passion dream jobs. Yeah. And One wants to be a fashion designer. Another one wants to be a Pentecostal preacher. (laughs) That's my favorite character. Um, Another one wants to uh, be in the CIA. And then finally, one is a slacker because every business... You have to have a slacker. You have to have a slacker. And he just wants to own or live in a tiki bar somewhere in the south pacific and i think pam i'm waiting for pam to burst into hysterics at there at the mention of the slacker employee yeah, yeah. Um, do you take off your shoes no <laughs> he takes off his shoes this character takes clinic. his takes his shoes off and puts his feet up on the desk in a medical clinic that's like wrong but anyway um <laughs> but every and then uh, one of the characters down the road who we were unable to introduce in the pilot because you don't mm-hmm. want to put too much because you've got first. you're really you, full it's, ensemble it's full yeah. it's a full ensemble but there's going to be a character he may come in in season two but there's one character that has his dream job he is living it and it drives Becca insane and because there we will run into during our lives we will run into those people who oh I got everything I wanted screw you <laughs> um, you run into those and it's that's what Becca calls about it's it's that it it brings to light 
the the hope of the dream job, but the dose of reality that sometimes there's a journey to get to it. And as the story develops, we'll find out how different people handle the delays. Mm-hmm. And my hope is to bring encouragement throughout the, the comedic scenarios and all of that, that despite delays, dream jobs are still very much attainable. Mm-hmm. Just you have to go around the the detours sometimes because there's construction (laughs) and she's constructing revenue for her book idea and it's that whole scenario and then some of them you know will you just never know they're different characters they might give up on their dream job and and find out that maybe there there's more to life than that dream job but maybe this is their dream job and it's that whole the at the ask the questions that we all ask ourselves is what was I meant to do Mm -hmm. and what is my dream and do even if it's my dream is it what I really want to do you know does it give me life and for Becca writing does give her life so that Mm -hmm. is her dream but some of these other people they just do it because their parents said that's what everybody does and so it's that whole uh, interconnected story of life and people that we run into and um, all with a comedic fun spin. It's so <laughs> much fun. It, it You cannot make it through the show without laughing. That's good to hear. <laughs> you cannot do it. Yeah. I mean, it is, you meet these characters, you see these characters. And it's not just the individual characters. It's the way you have them interacting with each other because mm-hmm. everybody is interacting with everybody else. Right. There's nobody is solitude with any monologues or soliloquies anywhere. Right. Everybody, it's just all crossover. Yeah. So you actually get to see, and thanks to some fine acting. Yes. You know, we see the frustration on the faces of some play yes. out. Yeah. And, you know, the awe on others yeah and general disgust on others yeah uh, as they hear what people want to do or what they are doing mm-hmm. yeah and- which my background is teamwork i was always the uh on a team i was a captain of volleyball and basketball teams and just knowing how people interact and then when i started going into acting and then the the cast is a team mm-hmm. when you work with different individuals in a cast it's not just their players that they're they're playing or their their uh characters that they're playing but it's it's also the people behind the the characters Mm -hmm. and how i wrote each one of these characters i was wanted to make it really easy for these actors i've worked with every single one of them i've watched them i know how their mannerisms and how they handle themselves so what i did was how i wrote their dialogue was an extension of, of who them. they were, their individual personalities. Now, naturally, it's an exaggeration <laughs> of their personalities. Really? But I, Is did, it? <laughs> but I didn't want it to be too far from what they could. I didn't want it to be opposite of who they were. I mm-hmm. wanted it to be something that felt like a glove. If it doesn't fit like a glove, then it, it's not working and we need to revise that. And mm-hmm. even on the set, I would tell them, memorize the script word for word. But when you're in the moment, Go for it. And that's where some of the most beautiful moments, the most hysterical moments mm-hmm. came about. Some of the words that they were coming up with, I'm like, yeah, just <laughs> sandwich here. <laughs> it, it was just, it, it came from them because yeah. they were basically being themselves. Mm-hmm. 
a silly version of themselves. Like Becca's not necessarily me, but it is a bubblier version of me. I, you know, I don't know how much more bubbly, you you know, (laughs) Becca, you know, a character you create can get because you're very bubbly. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it comes natural. Thank you, mom. (laughs) Um, (laughs) if you meet my mother, she's very bubbly herself. I was going to say, it must be that Texas living because, you know, I mentioned Carol Cook as we were coming in the studio. Yeah. Carol's from Texas. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I forgot about that. So, And I don't know how much more bubbly you can get than Carol. Well, it's it's the friendship state. Everybody's a friend. You drive down the street. It doesn't matter if you're in Dallas, Houston, or Midland, Texas. You just wave, hi, pleased to meet you, you know, with the steering wheel. It's, you got your hand in front of the steering wheel, just, hey. And if you do that here, people flick you off because they think you're flicking them off. And you're like, I'm sorry. They have no clue. They have no clue. I'm just. It's just who we are. We're we're friendly. But that works. Yeah, it works. That yeah. works. And it's sincere. It is sincere friendship. And it's and I guarantee you it has something to do with that's our motto. It's the Texas it's the friendship state. And everybody kind of just grooves to that. It's part of our nature. It's like, why don't you come over? We're gonna have some barbecue. You can just stand in the back of our yard and we're just have a real good old time. Um, if you do that here, people will be like, you trying to steal something from me? And it's just, yeah. but it's just part of who we are. And, um, when I flew all the actors out too, cause we shot in my hometown, back on call was shot in Midland. They loved it. Even though it was as conservative as it can be, uh-huh. they loved it because everybody's like, I don't care. We just love you. We're, we're excited to be in a movie. <laughs> And everyone, it they had the most fun time just being a part of my home. And I loved showing them. This is where I'm from. These are my friends. This Aww. is my eye doctor's clinic. We used my my eye doctors, my family eye doctor. That was the clinic Dr. Phillips. Dr. Phillips. And yeah. I think it's important that we give him a big Thank shout out. Thank you, Dr. Out. Phillips. Yay. Because at first I thought, oh my God, is that a real working office? Yeah. Or did she do a set designers? And it's like, no. And then I, I found, no, this is yeah. a real working real. office. And Lizzie Weaver was there and she she uh, watched as Cody, who plays um, Carl Doty, put his bare feet on her working space. Okay. <laughs> but she was very... Um, embracing of it <laughs> thank you for being so tolerant lizzie you know did you did you include the cost of disinfectant and lysol in your yeah. budgeting <laughs> no but they had they had it in abundance so. okay all right yeah. you weren't surcharged for the use no no because yeah, that's one of the great things is because everybody is so immersed in the actual yes. physical setting yeah oh yeah and you know it's real and it's a working place with mm-hmm. files and things that yeah, they could mess up. Yeah, they, yeah, and they allowed us to be in there. They absolutely well. The thing about Midland too is, if your parents went to that eye doctor, you will probably go to that eye sure. doctor. If that's your parents' dentist, you'll go to that. So these are people we have known for twenty, thirty, forty years yeah. in our family. So it's it is no different than having a, a niece come in and and shoot her you know, school project in mm-hmm. there, even though this was a, prof- it was so funny. It's a professional set, but, yes. uh, Dr. Phillips, um, I'm going to shout out to you. This was really funny. You, <laughs> he got a little surprised when I got so professional. She, he was 
like elbowing someone who was standing next to her. He's like, she looks so professional because he just... <laughs> He remembers me little oh. growing up. And then I put on my producer hat and it just totally threw him off. It's like that was in her all the time. I'm like, yeah, this is a professional set. I had to remind them this is a professional working set. <laughs> and um, But it's also it's that family feel. And my parents were the caterers. They were the ones that ran craft services. And so we kind of had our, our family involved in that. And it's one of the... Um, joys of when you go back home and work in your home Mm -hmm. is you can have family friends that you've grown up with and known all all your lives the there's a short school classroom scene at Mm -hmm. the very beginning that was at my school that I went to from the time I was four until I graduated high school oh my and that was the old choir room it's now the sixth grade Mrs. McCabe sixth grade class hi guys um <laughs> the, it's Mrs. McCabe's sixth grade class now but that was the choir room for elementary for middle school and then when what was funny they kind of followed my grade right um and then it was the high school choir room all my years in high school, and we had a really good choir, really good choir. Some of our, I won't mention them, but them by name, but some of our singers from our choir class have gone on to do Broadway mm-hmm. film in um, television here in L.A. And, and I'm not talking about me. They're oh. very... <laughs> <laughs> They're very uh, Tony Award winning singers from mm-hmm. our choir group during wow. our group. So to kind of do a cameo of Trinity, the Trinity Choir Room was really special for me. That is. Back on call. Yeah. So. That is. And now that you've mentioned the classes and everything, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the audio of this show, as you know, I'll have it up later today. Yeah. So everybody, and it'll be on iTunes tomorrow and then yes. the video will be out next week. Yes. But. Everybody can listen to you talking about yes. them on air. Ms. McCabe's sixth grade class. They had so much fun. We're going to be famous. <laughs> so well, yes, you will. So, yes, you will. So now if Becca on Call gets picked up, will you go back and shoot in te- shoot the whole it series really in de- It really depends because there's a that whole... A scenario of what happens when you film a pilot. This is kind of a new animal for the industry. Yeah. They're really not sure what to do because as it is, it would probably not be aired as is on like ABC, CBS. They'd, right. have, they'd have to completely redo it themselves. Mm-hmm. And it just depends on how the funding comes. If the funding came to Rising Monarch, then I would go back and mm-hmm. either, depending on how much funding we got, I would go back to Texas, bring our cast and just continue the story. Uh, if it got picked up by a network, we would have to start from scratch and we would have to build a set and we could keep the same. I would hope to keep the same cast. Mm -hmm. Logistically, I would probably have to sell it and be on the production team Mm -hmm. and hand it off to someone else logistically. Mm -hmm. But I'm open to all avenues of what this could do. I would definitely want to still be in charge of the story Mm -hmm. because I know where this thing is going. That's just it. And nobody can do this story but for you. Yeah. Yeah, and I've kind of made myself indispensable in that. But I'm also very aware of how the industry works. And what I would, my goal is to keep Beck on Call alive and keep me on the project. Mm -hmm. And however that looks. And if, again, if it's funding Rising Monarch to shoot it and then giving them a space to air it, then come on, I'll do it. I already did it before. <laughs> I will do the full thing. I've got the, the rest of the series is basically written. The next six episodes are oh ready. My God. 
Um, if we wanted 12 episodes, I would have to continue uh, really harnessing those last six episodes. Mm-hmm. So it's ready to go. But I also understand that if we want this to go on a network, then it would need to be kind of uh, revised here and there for their sake. And I also have options for those commercial breaks. What we don't see in the pilot is in the commercial breaks, what I want to do with each individual character. They would have a cameo, just like what you would do on Nickelodeon, where the actual character comes out and talks about a sponsored product. Mm -hmm. And then you do these little sketches with that mm-hmm. sponsored product. I already had those written. So oh, it is it is ready to go. <laughs> it's just I, I would be the best thing that ever happened to to a network that picked us up. That's that's all I can say. I would be the best thing that would ever happen to them because I know well, how to do this. You won't get any argument from <laughs> me. But you know, shall shall we invite Derek on yes! with us? Yes. Hi Derek. Wait. Derek, are you there? I am here. How Hi. are you? Hello, Derek, and the lovely Jen S. Rouse is here with me. Hello. Nice to meet you, friend. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> well, I... Nice I, to meet you as well. <laughs> I, I, We're Facebook friends. Oh. Uh, <laughs> he friended me. Oh. Uh, so now he's my as, friend. <laughs> as well, you should be. <laughs> yes. I, Derek, I have to say, you know, this documentary, John G. Appleton, mm-hmm. King of the Underdogs, I am in love with this documentary. It is so fabulous. It is so well done. I I am just, you have just blown my mind with what you did with this doc. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I mean, this is, and I can tell, this is a real labor of love on your part. Yes, very much so. I mean, it's been a... You know, it's been a few years in the making, and um, I just can't, I can't, I I wouldn't have imagined growing up that I would have been able to make this film, and uh, it's just been wonderful. Where did the idea for this documentary come? This, I mean, John Avildsen, so many of us, everybody knows his work, not everybody, you know, knew of, knows of John or knew him, but, you know, this is not typically what you know, you'd come up with for an idea for a project. So I'm curious, what was the impetus for you? Well, I, you know, John is kind of like my filmmaking influence and Rocky and the Karate Kid are my two favorite films of all time. So (laughs) I just, you know, I really wanted to work with John and I've studied his films and, and he became a friend and a mentor. And originally I wanted him to direct you know, one of my scripts, and uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out. Yeah, he, uh, I sent him the first script, and he said, look, send me the script in a $1,000 check. If I like it, I'll do it. If I don't, I'll script out your, your script for you, make it better. If that's worth a 1000 bucks, send it on. So I did. And two weeks later, he calls me, and he says, get a pen and paper ready. Your script sucks. Let's talk about it. And I'm like, okay, I'm devastated that he doesn't want to direct it. But then he turned me down on a second script, which he didn't charge me for. Um, So now I'm like, okay, that's progress. Two scripts down the drain. And now, like, what do I do? So I came up with the idea. Well, hey, John, look, I really want to work with you. So if I can't make a movie with you, what if I make a movie about you? 
and he says, you want to work with me, kid? You're in. That's it. Let's do it. So that's kind of how it all came about. It was out of like this, I really want to work with my, my hero. And then he gave me that chance. Wow. How did you go about, because this is a very nonlinear format, and I know with something such as this, as a documentarian, you could have gone and done it chronologically, which I don't think would have worked as well, given what you have here, because you really play on emotional beats of John's films, his stories, and his own story in crafting your, your, uh, your construct, your timeline construct here. How did you go about deciding, you know, the approach to take, or was was it unfolding as the interviews started rolling in? You know, we actually, we decided early on we were going to go chronologically, and we actually had our first rough cut, or our first assembly, we showed to John about a year into production, and it was 90 minutes long, right now it sits at 78 minutes, and when it was over, although he loved it, I mean, we, we hit on almost everything. He goes, you know, guys, you got to take about 30 minutes of this out. It, it, some of these movies just don't need to be discussed. And we're like, what? You know, like, who, who tells you to cut 30 minutes out of a movie about them? And he said, look, it's just not working. You're boring me after Karate Kid. Like, what's left? All of my duds? So we decided, we realized he was right, and to keep you know the audience from having a snooze fest, we rearranged everything, we cut a lot of films out, which I still would have loved to have you know, dissected, and we realized, okay, first act, let's have it Rocky-centric, and then, you know, in the middle, you know how Rocky V didn't do that well, and then we kind of dipped down into his low points. Mm-hmm. But then we decided to finish out the movie with a Friday kid. So that's kind of how it came about, was John saying, let's not bore the audience. You don't have to go chronological. Let's switch it up some. And it worked. Well, but what you also do, though, you touch on all the other films, and you get all of those actors involved. It's like, mm-hmm. you got Stephen Dorff in there. I, I love Stephen. <laughs> he knows that. Um no, Stephen. Oh, yeah, he's great. Stephen is, is wonderful, and I'm so thrilled. He's got a few films coming out this year, and it's so great to see mm. him doing something besides vape cigarette ads. Um, <laughs> but, you, you know, you also bring in Randall Battenkoff, Randall, whom I adore. And I'll briefly, Absolutely. I will briefly tell you I moderated a Q&A at the world premiere of Randall's film that he directed, 37. And John was there. Great film. John was there in the oh, audience. I was there, you were there too, and you yeah. didn't. You didn't even come yeah. say hello oh, to me. You know, Derek. <laughs> yeah, I don't, think we, I don't think we knew each other at the time. <laughs> we did. No, we, we actually but did. Yeah, we had connected after they sh- um, they served beer in hell. After your acting, you know what? You're right. Yeah, I remember we met. I was with uh, our friend Sally Kirkland when we actually met. That's right. That's anyway. right. So anyway, um, but John came up yeah, to me. Randall. Yeah, John came up to me after the Q&A, and he just complimented me on how much he liked it and, and the fact that I really touched on the technical aspects of the film and how that technically, metaphorically played in with the emotionality of the, of the film. And, you know, I'd been mm-hmm. a huge fan of John's for years, and I never got to work with him, 
when I was doing production, although I did work on a, on Rocky three, but yeah, to hear that come from John was like, oh my god. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was in the audience. And I have to say, the, it's the only time I've ever moderated a Q&A, no matter who was in the audience. But John Avildsen was in that audience, and that mattered. Mm-hmm. That made me nervous. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned that he yeah. came up to you yeah. afterwards. So, but, you know, you get these, you get Lloyd Kaufman, you get, you know, you've got great stuff from Mike Metavoy. Burt Young, I can't, Burt is just such a doll. And he had some great things to say. But even little guys like Sean Kane and Luke Perry, mm-hmm. um, you really, you dug in deep mm-hmm. to make sure you really touched on every, almost every aspect. You know, and then you pull up your archival yeah, and footage. It, and unfortunately, a lot of those, and unfortunately, a lot of those guys had to be cut down when we rearranged things. And, you know, so that's unfortunate. Um but, uh, you know, it, it, they all are in there, and it, I think it worked out. And I think that they're all happy with how it worked out as well, you know? Well, I think that all of them love John so much mm-hmm. that even if you gave them 15 seconds, I think they'd be thrilled. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've, I've got to ask you. How you had mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Derek. I had mentioned who, what? Oh, you just mentioned the, the archive footage yes i am because you've got a wealth yeah. of that in there you've got the jack lemon footage um before his passing you've got some great vintage stuff with morgan freeman yeah um so i'm curious what you yeah. went through what was that research process like to get footage that wasn't already like in john's collection or something that he had hands on for yeah it, it was kind of word of mouth um, John just knew a lot of people that, you know, from the past that it had certain things, like for example, the Jack Lemon interview, which is like a gift from heaven. <sighs> that is never, that's never before seen footage, except what it was is one of John's friends, uh, whom I've met, John Bodon is a film instructor. Uh, and years ago, I think it was the year 2000, John was coming to be like a guest instructor for a few days or something at Jean Bodon's film class. Mm -hmm. And he knew Jack Lemon. So he asked Jack, Hey, will you, can I shoot this um, intro video? Kind of welcome John to the class as a little treat. And Jack said, sure. So he did. And he showed it to the class and then it sat in the vault. It was, and so Jean Bodon was like, Hey, I have this. You can have it. And it was like, Oh my gosh. Like, it's like Jack Lemon just came down from heaven and was like, here, here's this video that no one's seen before except those students. I mean, I was, that, that's one of the, the big things that blew me away, mm-hmm. not just in your storytelling, but for an element, it's like, oh my God, that was an, oh, Jack Lemon was an oh my God moment because in all of my years, I had never seen that footage or even heard about it. Well, it made it feel like you yeah. had interviewed him yourself. And when I heard his voice come on and then he came on, I was like, when did he do this interview? (laughs) It took me aback. I was like, no, I thought 
Now, wh- how how recent is this? Because <laughs> it it fit in beautifully with the entire structure of the documentary. It just flowed, and it it took it to a new level when he was brought on. And it really the the feeling of the documentary. This it is so solid. It's mm-hmm. you know you have those documentaries that will be the one that have you seen this to understand a certain person or a certain individual in history you need to watch this documentary this is the most informative this one has the earmarks of of being very informative of john albertson because nobody knows who he is i mean very few people do outside of the industry really know who Mm -hmm. he is you did those interviews of who do you think interviewed or who do you think directed rocky and people say (laughs) sylvester sloan or rocky and that's what i would have said i mean i'm gonna be just blatantly honest that's what i would have said but you are bringing to the plate someone who deserves honor and praise. And that's why all these individuals, all these actors yeah. who have worked with them, they have so much respect, even though a couple of the experiences were not positive. Wasn't it Burt Reynolds had a hard time with yeah. them? Or they still had so much respect for the man. Mm-hmm. And what this does is it, it brings that to light because this is someone who needed honor because he created two iconic films that have changed the film industry. Very much so. So, yeah. congrats. Well, I appreciate those kind <laughs> of words. He, he, really, yeah. he really deserved it, you know? Yeah. John, just, like, growing up, I would just see, you know, watch these movies and study them and and I would see this weird name on the screen, John G. Abelson. And I'm yeah. like, as a young kid, I'm like, who's that? Now, how come he made these movies, but I don't know him like I know Steven Spielberg? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? And, and and that always sat in the back of my mind growing up. And, um, and yeah, you're right. You just said it. All these people, they signed on for John. Mm-hmm. You know, they signed on because they knew he started their career or he, he you know, got them directed them to an Oscar nomination or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, he, he was very well liked, except like you said, Burt Reynolds. Yeah. <laughs> but he was respectful. He was respectful. He was very That's... respectful. And he was actually even sad that it didn't work out because he knew what a great artist John was. Yeah. And he wanted it to work. Well, and, you know, I'll give you a little tidbit that's not in the film. Uh-huh. Uh, just didn't make its way in, unfortunately. But, yes. you know, I was sitting there with Bert, and I said, look, I'm going to throw you a curveball. What would it be like if you saw John Avelton again? And would you want to? And he said, is he here? I said, no, 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 he's not here. He said, you know, I would like to see him again, and I think it would be wonderful. You oh. know what? I would love that. Yeah, absolutely. And it was just like this little really nice moment of him saying, hey, bygones are bygones, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, the hatchet's been buried. And when I told John that and showed him the footage, John was very emotional about it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they didn't get to reconnect again. And um, but, you know, we're, John was very happy that Bert signed on for the documentary. Was there anybody that you wanted to speak with that you didn't get to speak with? Like perhaps Susan Sarandon, you know, since that was her very first film, she was directed by him. Yeah. You know, Susan Sarandon, Morgan Freeman, Daniel Craig, we just could not get them because of scheduling. Um, But gosh, we wanted to so bad. You know, because again, like you said, he pretty much discovered Susan Sarandon theatrically. I think she had done television before then. Yeah, and Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig as well. Daniel Craig's first feature. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, that was the last segment that we put in the film before it was uh, released. John was, or before we were finishing it up, John said, look, we're missing something. And it's the Daniel Craig thing. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, we can't get Daniel and blah, 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 blah. He was like, let's, let's, no, you, you really need to add a segment in there. So we did, and it works. And so many people are like, wow, he gave he gave James Bond his start? And yeah, he did. <laughs> you know? It's crazy, crazy. I mean, he put Rocky Balboa on the map. Yeah. You know, why are people so surprised that he Absolutely. gave James Bond a start? Yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Now, you did your own editing on this, Derek, so I'm curious, because this was a lengthy process for you in accumulating the interviews, all this archival footage, John's old home movies, um, you know, what was the editing process like for you? Was this a work in progress as you went, or did you wait and accumulate everything at the end and then do your first pass? You know, how do you approach something that is this massive an undertaking with this many moving parts? It was definitely a work in progress. It uh, and, and the funny thing is, for a whole year, John kept a lot of his vault to himself. He wanted to see how serious we were. He wanted to see, mm. you know, is this worthy enough? And after that first rough cut, that's when he started opening up his vault of archival footage for us. And he just let it flow. I mean, he was. we were meeting with him twice a week picking up hard drives and discs of all of this stuff. I mean, there was just so much that he, that he kept. And once, once he did that, we were in business. I mean, then I had a lot to work with, a lot to cut with, not just the footage, but the photographs. Mm-hmm. And so really it was kind of editing as we went along. Mm-hmm. But once we nailed all the interviews down, we did about 40, I think, in nine months, something like that. Then it was just this massive, massive undertaking of, of editing every single day and scouring through all of this amazing stuff. And it's funny, I remember before our first private screening, it was like three days before, and John calls me and says, hey, uh, I know the screening's coming up, but I found some more goodies for you. I was like, oh, John, uh, I mean, come on, I, that's too, it's just too late. And he goes, no, 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 come over, you really need to see this. So I go over, and it's the behind-the-scenes stuff from Save the Tiger of him and Jack Lemmon and Jack Gilford. And I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, okay, I need... So I rushed and got it in there. (laughs) Wow. And that's just how it was, you know, with John. He was always finding goodies to put in. Well, he had about 80 million goodies. He always had his camera running. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, that I find really interesting, the fact that this is what John has always done, and, and those of us that know of him or knew him knew that he did this. He always had his 8mm yes. or something running, and he would basically shoot the films before he shot the yeah. films and work from that. Is that something that you as a director, is that something that surprised you? And you too, Janice. Mm-hmm. It, has it ever occurred to you guys to do something like that with a project? Uh, you know, um, it, not really. I think that was, I think John was one of the first guys to do that. Mm-hmm. And and just, because uh, a lot of Hollywood directors I've, I've spoken to since the film have said, or who have seen the film, 
they all say, gosh, I wish I would have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I should start doing that. And, um, yeah, it's something that probably is a really good idea. It worked out for John. What about you? It, yeah, it's and unusual. You, it's unusual for a director to be carrying around a camera. We had our uh, cinematographer was uh, videoing on a separate camera behind the scenes footage because he was thinking if you ever had a DVD, if you want to have behind the scenes footage, which is just a lot of extra work that I would have to do to make <laughs> behind the scenes work. But he caught a lot of those behind the scenes moments that would be put in a DVD setting. People are now thinking, you know, DVD behind the scenes interviews and those little extra stuff. John was way before his time. Yeah. Because he was thinking that Mm -hmm. in the beginning and as a director, he was also a DP. That's, you don't see that a lot anymore where it's more, the director's just focusing on the actor and the DP is focusing on the angle. This guy was focusing on, every aspect of every project he was a part of because he was the leader this is my baby this is this is my vision and this is what i want from you and and he was kind of all over it even though he was not necessarily the the dp or the cinematographer Mm -hmm. he was over it all and you don't see that as much anymore it's kind of been so micro cosmic whatever (laughs) dissected to each individual parts yeah and um, it was it was refreshing to see because that's old school to me. Mm-hmm. That is old school. Someone who loves this craft and wants to catch every moment of it. And he was before his time because mm-hmm. no one was thinking behind no. the scenes footage then. And of course, you know, you now, Derek, you know, you've learned about this firsthand, talking to John about it, seeing all of this. Is this going to impact how you approach future directorial projects? 100%. The the knowledge that this man bestowed upon me in the five years that I've known him is just, it's invaluable. I mean, the the mentorship, the he was always available for questions and, and comments, and it was, I always called him my, my own Mr. Miyagi. I mean, he really took me under his wing and taught me so much, and not just about filmmaking, but about myself. You know, one thing he told me was, a lot of people ask me, what's the one thing, if only one thing, that you learn from John? And I always say, it's to have an opinion and stick to it. And it got him in trouble a lot. But (laughs) what he means is, look, you're the director. It's your vision. And as he says in the film, if you think otherwise, you direct it. And, Mm. yeah, I've just, a lot of my process has changed. Now, one thing that I, I... I do do a lot like he did. I like to cut my own stuff. Um, He was also an editor. He cut a lot of his own movies. Because I have nothing but respect for editors. I just have to also be one. I'm not a cameraman or a DP or cinematographer. He he could could like shoot. That's something I'm not really interested in. But I like to stage it and frame it. And, you know, I want but I let you do that. As far as editing, I really love cutting my own stuff, and he and I talked about it. And he said, yeah, what better way? He said, look, you're the director, and if you can cut, cut. Because you already know it. It's already edited in your head, so why have to translate that? And that got him in trouble a few times. <laughs> but he always said, look, learn from what I've done 
and apply it and learn from the mistakes I've made. Don't make those mistakes. So uh, it's just, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, I miss him already. He's been gone a little over a month. Yeah. Now. Wow. Yeah. So I've got to add, because you've got two other very fascinating projects in the works right now. Um, that stem out of this documentary, John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs. You're now working on 40 Years of Rocky, the birth of a classic, and something that I'm sure will shock everybody, Stallone, Frank, that is. And Are you not focusing on Frank's career in music, a large part of what's in, in the doc on him? Absolutely. The, the, the Frank, Frank Stallone doc, is it you know when you hear it at first you go huh and then you go ah of course he's do a documentary i this love i love his music 50 year career ah. absolutely i mean talk about underdogs frank has had a 50 year career he's he's a grammy golden globe nominated singer musician mm-hmm. actor very talented and hasn't really gotten the credit that he deserved and, and didn't have the break that he deserved. I always tell him, I was like, man, if, if you would have had the proper management and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you could have been Springsteen. He, he, I think really that's a good, that's talented. a good now, assessment. When you think of, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and when you think of, and I think he opened for Springsteen back in the seventies, by the way. But, um, when you think of Frank Stallone, you know, right off the bat, that last name, Stallone, you're already not thinking of his music or his mm-hmm. abilities or his talent or anything like that. Who do you think of? So, you know, so uh, we're very excited. We've already started filming that, and uh, we've already interviewed Sly and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Stallone and several others. And, uh, yeah, it's just a fascinating project about a fascinating character. So will you be in- interviewing Cynthia Rhodes by any chance? I hope so. He he speaks so highly of her, you know, with their with uh, staying alive and whatnot. Because I worked on staying alive. I was doing second unit on staying alive, and Janice, her face is just like, oh my god. Um, and nice. I was always, I loved Frank's music. Mm-hmm. I could have listened to the rehearsals and and the, the you know the takes on that forever. The two of them, fabulous. But Frank's music, I've always been. A huge fan, and yeah. you know, if you're in Phil, if you come from Philadelphia, you do know Frank Stallone's music. Oh yeah, Philly or New York, yeah, you know, right. his, you know Northeast. his music. Mm-hmm. So that's that's real. I'm really waiting to see what you do with that. You know, and then your 40 years of Rocky. How do, how do you take 40 years of Rocky and put it into one, one you know one documentary of 90 minutes? Well, you know. And, and the funny thing is, we wanted to do that in 2016, which was the actual 40th anniversary, right. but, uh, you know, things happened. So we, we might even change the title. We'll see. But what that is, is basically we're going to focus on the original Rocky, and it's going to be comprised of a plethora of John Abelson's behind-the-scenes footage and that, <laughs> you know, plenty of people have seen by now, and, and we use a lot of it in our in King of the Underdogs. But we're going to really, really show this intimate, intimate making of this classic film and what it took to make it and what it's done for the last four decades. So it's going to be a unique 
different spin on documentaries and, and especially Rocky documentaries because there's a billion of those out there. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm making one request, though, in that one. If you have any behind-the-scenes footage of the scenes at the Philadelphia Zoo in the snow, I'd like that included. Because no. the, the, those su- those scenes included my favorite zoo tiger who, who was there from oh. when I was born. So, you know, that's my personal request, oh, wow. Derek. <laughs> yeah. Gotta get yeah. the tiger in that's there. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Now, everybody can see John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs. They can have it in their own home tomorrow. DVD, digital download, Blu-ray, and it's still in theaters. This is, I mean, this is, this is like, absolutely. there's no better way to kick off August than, I mean, it will be, it'll be a knockout August 1st because of John G. Avildsen, King of the Underdogs, Derek. Well, we're very excited to release finally. It took us, you know, we worked on this project for over three years. So uh, tomorrow can't come soon enough, I tell you. <laughs> uh, well, and unfortunately... We're out of time for the entire Yay! show. I know. Derek Johnson, thank you so, so much. You will come back on the show, will you not? Absolutely. Anytime. Oh. Thank you so much for having both of you. Oh, what a joy. Thank you, Derek. And thank you, Janice Yay, Rouse, Becca you. on call. Yeah. And Janice is actually going to be back next month, either uh-huh. in person or calling in. Yeah. To talk about another project that she has. Yeah, the RMP concerts, but that's the teaser. <laughs> so, Derek, thank you. Janice, thank you. Thank you. And for Behind the Lens, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>